honor Theo and his family. All right. You guys passing the buckets, cool. While they're doing that, let's just close our eyes one more time. Jesus, we love your presence. May we never be, Lord, in a rush. I know we've been doing it for a while, but just <laughs> lift your hands one more time. Sorry. Lift your hands. Lord, I pray that tonight old fears leave. Old anxiety. Old unforgiveness. Lead us in the secrets of your presence. Because all you have to do is glorify him. that you remove any of us that have become in our hearts familiar and that you bring wonder and fascination back to our eyes again which causes us to be struck by your beauty again may tonight be a night of new commitments but an old flame Thank you for your presence that's here. This is your service. This is your church. Be the king. Take your place. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, man. Little Theo really screwed me up during worship, so I love you. I'm so proud of you. If you didn't know, that was Theo's son doing the thing where we were all crying. All right. Beautiful. All right. You guys ready for the word? I've missed you. I've been gone for two weeks, and uh, I'm excited that 
my cousin Theo and Rachel are here. I'm also excited my brother Costi is here and Erica and Pastor Jenny and Pastor Tanner. Can we honor them for being with us tonight? If you're new, if you're new here, my, my brother leads Risen Nation in Dallas along with uh, Erica and Pastor Tanner and Pastor Jenny. Pastor Tanner is our executive pastor and Pastor Jenny leads School of Habitation, which is actually moving here as of January. And we're excited about it. And yes, it's going to be so good. We're going to go deep with students every single week. And it's going to be amazing. I have a lot of vision to share about that, but tonight is not the night. Did you guys bring your Bibles? Do you bring your Bibles to church? You remember this thing with, uh, it's a bestseller. Not just your phones, but like pages that you could smell. I'm just kidding. It's fine if you use your phone. I just like marking my Bible. But I, I want to encourage you tonight that you would actually take notes, especially if you feel like the Lord is, um, if you're feeling like the Lord is wanting you to call this home, tonight is very important. I want to teach tonight because it's just very important for uh, the foundation of who we are, the blueprints of what we've been talking about we want to set. Uh, A few weeks back, we talked about um, how I believe the Lord is restoring worship according to the order of David, and what does it mean to be a house that raises Levites, which Jeremiah 33 says there will never cease to be Levites that are ministering to the Lord. And it goes on and it says, if you can break my covenant with the sun and my covenant with the moon, you can break my covenant with David, where I said there will always be priests ministering to me. In other words, you have no power to affect when the sun comes up and no power to affect when the sun goes down. And the Lord says, if you have the power to do that, then you can break that covenant. In other words, you just can't break the covenant that God will always look for a people in the earth that will tend to his heart. And I think in many ways we have uh, seen in our Western culture, and, not, and, and by no means do we claim to have or be the ones or the only ones that have figured, out, figured it out. I will tell you, there is an upcoming generation, like when I listen to Theo get up here and just pray. There's an upcoming generation that is not going to know anything else other than the presence of Jesus, and they're born in Zion, and so religion just doesn't work for them, right? Going through the motions doesn't work for them. Um, they, don't, they don't understand uh, what does it mean to just go to church on Sunday. The Lord is doing something in the next generation, and now more than ever, we need fathers and mothers that have this resolute decision in their heart, as for me and my house... My house is going to serve the Lord. I don't care how dark the culture is. I don't care how dark the world is. And I don't care how much church has become a Sunday morning activity called religion. But Lord, I want my family. I want, there's a scripture that talks about we will point at the little ones and say this one was born there. And this one was born there. And that's what I want to see over my kids, man. And so we need less uh, articulate life coaches, and we need more fathers. We need more mothers that have made the next generation more important. So tonight I want to I teach on the forerunner spirit. And I want you to write down in your notes the forerunner spirit. And I, and I don't have time to go through. We're going to read a lot of Bible tonight, and it's going to be fun. And we're just going to go on a journey. But I, I, it's really important to me that you make this your study, especially if you are calling this home. Because this is a pillar within this house of we are divorcing the idea of simply being uh, pastors to people we don't know. 
Our heart is that we raise fathers and mothers, that this gathering be a celebration that will eventually be uh, every day of the week in Dallas. We are meeting in homes. We've developed leaders and pastors that lead these homes that there's no requirement to be a part of the church in Dallas other than you have to be plugged into a house. And this will be a part of what we do here. If you will be plugged into a home with a father and a mother that are being fathered and mothered. And so I don't care who walks through the door. We can't have a culture here that says, well, worship is amazing. The presence of God is there, but I'm not growing and I'm not being discipled. Church is not a building. It's a family. And it's become an event that we attend rather than a family that we are assembled to. And how many of you know there's a difference between gathered and being assembled? If I gathered car parts and put it in a garage, it doesn't make it a car until that car is assembled. And so we don't just need to gather, we need to learn how to assemble. We need to learn how to honor not just the mouth and the face of the body, we need to learn how to honor the ligaments of the body. The right hand can't tell the left hand, I have no need of you. But really, if we're honest, this is how we really function in church is we just want to go to the place we can get in and out. And I'm telling you, my desire is that we can have a place here when you walk in, you know your family. Because this is the only way that we can build according to the pattern because God said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, I'm a God of family. He doesn't do anything else outside of this way of who he is. He can't be anything else. And so I want to talk about this forerunner spirit that ultimately leads to a house that raises sons. And not just so you can live in our house. Till you're, if, if my little son William here is 53 and he's still in my house asking mommy for breakfast, I'm going to be concerned. The point is, is he don't, he not just stay here forever and serve my vision. The point is, is I fathered him well enough to get his own. The point is, is I have fathered him well enough that one day he's going to give me money. I mean, pastor, like I don't have a 401k. I got children. That's what my dad used to say. He said, I, and as it, he would say, I'm a pastor and I don't get to retire. I preach and then I die. That's what my dad used to tell us. I thought that's really morbid, but that's fine. But you know... The scriptures, the way the scriptures describe family is inheritance wasn't your money. Your inheritance wasn't the house and the estate that you're leaving behind. The inheritance was your kids. And so I want to talk about inheritance tonight. I want to talk about that spirit. But where I want to start and just listen to this part, because we're coming up on, I believe it's the 506th year. I could be wrong on a year or two of the Protestant Reformation in October. But October 31st, I just want you to listen. We're going to go have a little history lesson for a second. 1517, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses on the church doors in Germany. These 95 theses challenged the church of the day that had swayed from the scriptures. And in a time where people couldn't directly go to the Lord, but were told that they had to go through a pope or a priest, the Bible in that time only had been written in in Latin, an indulgence or payment to fathers in the Catholic Church for the forgiveness of sins was the standard of the day. And so this man, Martin Luther, um, that started the Protestant Reformation, it was started on the foundation that salvation cannot be earned, but it is a gift. And so this man, uh, in courage and boldness, walks up to the main church 
in Germany, which would have been like the central of the Catholic Church in the day, and he starts banging these 95 theses on the door, uh, not really concerned about his life. There's a saying that says, what you don't confront becomes culture, right? And so he had the courage to not just say yes, but actually confront the culture and say, no, there's also got to be a resounding no in a generation that says when the world's getting darker, we're going to get brighter. And when religion, you can't tell the difference anymore between the religious and the, and the world. And we have to be politically correct now behind the pulpit because a government told me that they'll take my nonprofit status away. Let them have it. They didn't give me anything to begin with, right? And so there's, there's this you know, the Lord's taking us from just performers to reformers, and I believe that God's raising young reformers in this room and old that are saying we are, we're, we're not okay with what the culture is telling us church has to be, and we want to get back to something ancient. So listen, this one man, here's the results of what he caused. The Bible, from, this, from that one act which emboldened people all around him, the Bible was translated into other languages besides Latin for the first time which means we received the Bible in English because of this one man's act. It ended, listen, a 30-year war where 8 million people died, which was a war that was uh, predominantly around Roman Catholics, Calvinists, and Lutherans. It was religious. It also ended indulgence, which was the doctrine I was just telling you about, where the forgiveness of sins, in order to be forgiven, they would tell you that you have to come and confess and pay up to half a year of wages. Half of the year of your salary, they had convinced people in this 1500s that you had to pay half of your salary to be forgiven of sins. This one man's act caused all of those things to crumble. By the mid-1500s, the Reformation began to spread throughout all of Europe, and the Reformation would begin to impact England as Protestants poured in from other countries. England stood strong in Catholicism and persecuted and exiled Protestants and labeled them Puritan separatists. This led to a group of 102 Puritan separatists boarding a ship called the Mayflower. And a hundred years, a hundred years after Martin Luther nailed these theses to the door of the Catholic Church, the Mayflower lands on the shores of America carrying men, women, and children hungry to worship Jesus in freedom. And these separatists were emboldened by Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And our entire country is indebted to a man having courage to stand up to religion. That's unbelievable. Because one guy had the courage to stand in the face of what culture was telling him it was supposed to be, and he, was, and he was a part of the priesthood. Like It's like the Lord brought him into it to be able to come against it. And so he was able to read the scriptures. And so this one man's act literally is one of the main foundational reasons that we are able to stand in this room and worship the Lord in freedom. And so <clears throat> this forerunner spirit is in those that, listen, have the courage to stand up to what they tell me that it's got to look like for the sake of our kids. It's a way of thinking that says we're not necessarily looking for instant gratification, but we actually believe that sometimes delayed gratification is God's kiss for our kids. It's a heart, listen, that, that says, Lord, we're going to fight the battles so our children don't have to, right? And I know that many of you maybe have heard this story, but I think it's I think it's necessary. How many of you, this is your first time here, just so I could see? Raise your hand. Can we welcome them? Thank you guys for coming tonight. 
Um, in, a, in a way, I feel, uh, in a way, I, uh, it feels unfair with, with the father and the mother that God gave me. Because I had an amazing example growing up, and I know that that's not everybody's story. But, you know, for my whole life, for 30 years, I saw, I saw my, my parents struggle. Now, the Lord blessed our family, but I, I saw them struggle in ministry, struggle in church. My dad started a church in Orlando, Florida, and, and after, I don't know, however many years, 12 years, moved us all to California, and we grew up just following the clout. And whatever Bubba said, we just did, right? And we, we moved to California, and he started another community. We moved then to, to Texas 12 years later, so it's like 12, 12, and then 12 years later, we moved to Dallas, and he starts another community, and small communities that were all about raising the next generation. And I remember the days when we would meet in Pastor Mark's house and the kids would be upstairs and there'd be 30 people in a living room and these 30 families moved with us across the United States three times. And that same 30 for 10 years or nine years or whatever it was in Texas that same 30 never really grew to 31, just stayed 30. And there's something radical, you know, like we think that radical Christianity is I'm going to lift my shoes up at a service, and then I'm going to go to Guam, and I'm going to win a million people. So you go to the service, you lift your shoes up, and I'm all for that. I, I've lifted my shoes up three to four times at the scent. I'm just being honest. And, and every time I cry and every time I come, I'm all about it. I love all of that. Don't, don't hear me in the wrong way. But I lifted my shoes up, and then Monday I woke up, and I put my shoes on, and I went to work. And, and I didn't get to go to Guam on Tuesday, right? So some of you went to your 9 to 5, and we've, we've created this culture that what success is, is in your lifetime, you're going to go and accomplish all of this stuff, and the cost of ministry is your kids, Right, But I think radical Christianity is the Lord said, I want you to start something in a living room and you didn't change the channel for 30 years and you just stayed in the same living room. I think radical Christianity is when you said, well, he didn't say anything else. All he told me was to start a prayer room. He didn't tell me to do anything else. All he told me to do was to minister to my kids and to be faithful at my job. And that's all I'm going to do until he tells me something different. And so for 30 years... We would listen to my father minister. I remember being 10 years old and we were at a church. I'll never forget the name of the church that we were meeting in. It was called El Shaddai. The carpets were red. I'm 10 years old and I'm hearing my dad on stage weep and cry and going off about Ezekiel 44 and how there's two priesthoods in the scriptures. There's one that is on the outer court that's for the people and then there's one that comes into his chamber and sits at his table and tends to his heart. And I remember at 10 years old thinking to myself, I want to be one that sits at God's table and tends to his heart, right? And so what, what I think my dad maybe didn't realize in that season, or maybe he did, maybe he was the one that had it figured out all along, but what he didn't realize is my brother and I and my sisters and I are sitting upstairs listening to this man stay faithful with 30 people, and that word is getting inside of us, and there's an inheritance in his kids that was only going to come by way of his faithfulness, right? And so in 2019, my dad is pastoring a church with those 30 people on Sunday morning. My brother is just installed as the senior pastor 
I'm three years younger than him. And we're celebrating. I, I'm a part of the worship team. And after a month of that installment, my dad has a dream where the Lord speaks to him to step aside to make room for resignation, which at the time we were gathering, Gerardo and I and a few of us were gathering in coffee shops with just some young adults hungry for the Lord. My dad and my brother pulled me into the room. They said, the Lord spoke to us. You're starting a church, and we're going to support it. You're going to go to Sundays. And I'm thinking, what are, you, what, no, 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 what are you talking about? And my older brother left a full-time senior pastor role to volunteer as his younger brother's associate pastor. And we started August 25th, 2019, and the Lord did a mighty work in Dallas. And I've watched this progression in my dad's life where now although maybe rejected in many ways by his own generation, we now are receiving from a field that we didn't sow in or plow for. We are now receiving of a harvest that a generation before us paid a price for. And I always say, I'm not where I am today because I'm anointed. I am where I am today because I got under somebody that was anointed. And you can't be in authority unless you're under it. Now, what religion tells you, because we watch too many podcasts, is any authority is going to turn to narcissism. Right? What religion teaches us is nobody has control of you, you're your own person. And we've forgotten about words like submission. <laughs> see, don't, don't tell me what to do. But you see, healthy authority is not restrictive, it's permissive. Healthy authority, this is my my four-year-old daughter, Ellie, who's not paying attention. She's on a phone, but Ellie needs my authority right now. She may not think it at times, but she does. She's not ready to be an adult. She's not ready to make her own decisions. My authority protects Ellie. My authority raises Ellie. And God forbid I come home one day and she no longer recognizes my authority because I made her an equal too quickly. Right? So I've heard it described like authority is like fire. It can be in the confines of a fireplace and be nice on a Christmas night watching a Hallmark movie. Yeah, I've watched a couple. <laughs> I was against them. I'm just side, side rabbit trail. My wife would always be like, just watch one. I'd be like, that's so lame. And then I find myself asking her questions of, so where did this guy come from and how are they? <laughs> just... Sucks me right in. So it can, it can be a nice, cozy moment between you and your wife, or it can kill you and your whole family. Right? But within the right boundaries, within the right structure in which the scriptures teach us, we actually really need it. Or otherwise, we don't make it. Right? And so we are in an, in an hour where there is this hidden war over who and what's going to shape culture. Right? There's this hidden war. I don't know if you've noticed, right? We all noticed it when we went on strike with Target. But I don't know if you noticed, but the enemy is not creative enough to come up with new tactics. And what he's always done is he's always come against the next generation. Right? From the time of Moses, killing the firstborn, you know, or all of the, the boys to the time of Jesus, killing all of the men, the young boys that were going to be men under two years old. Right? It's always been cut them off. It's, it's that subtle thing that we think is a political issue like abortion. 
right? And we don't want to touch it as pastors because God forbid there's a Democrat in our congregation. This is, this is not a Republican-Democrat issue. This is a demonic issue. It's, it's light versus darkness, and we need some forerunners to stand up and say this isn't okay. And, and we are wondering why we're going through what we're going through, but we're voting for it, inviting it into our lives, Right? I know that that's strong, and as you get to know us, it's only going to get worse. I'm just warning you. I wish I could tell you that you'll... Well, anyway, so listen, the root of evil I think that's taking place in the world is specifically against our children, and it's to deconstruct the beauty of family. They're trying to take fathers out of homes. Anyone ever watched a Disney movie? Now listen, don't don't take the... it's fine if you watch Disney, my kids, it's okay. But you ever notice like the parents are always gone in the movie? Or they get rid of them and it's the kids trying to fend for themselves? There's this subtle undertow within our culture of trying to shape it and shape our kids' minds if you don't need anybody, be the best version of yourself. No, 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 the Bible says you have to die to yourself. And you've noticed this, this nonsense has creeped into the church and the way that we preach of let's learn how to, how to really value, and, and, and I'm not against valuing yourself, just make sure that it's Christ in you, the hope of glory, and that we don't start teaching self-help but self-denial. Right? It's subtle, and, it's, and it makes, and it makes it's a feel-good, and it feels good when it comes out. It feels good, and I leave encouraged, but really we're setting people up for failure if we don't teach them. The foundation of the gospel is you have to come and die. Okay, so I'm going to start getting off into that. But there is an attack against the structure of family. And, and again, it's not, it's not political. This is an old, ancient demonic attack, all right? So Malachi 4, you don't have to turn there, just write this down. Malachi 4, and I'm going to read verses 4 through 6. It says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Everyone say before. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I want you to listen to this. The earth's future was dependent on this prophecy. I will strike the land. I'm going to strike the earth, another translation says, with a curse if this doesn't happen. Okay? Now we know it's proclaiming and prophesying the coming of Jesus. It, it, it's the old covenant ends in the book of Malachi. But this environment, and I want you to write this down, this environment of fathers and sons is the environment that the scriptures tell us is conducive for the coming of the Lord. This environment of hearts, of fathers being turned towards the children. Now, you're going to hear me say a lot tonight, fathers and sons, but mothers, I want you to hear, I'm also saying mothers and daughters. Deal? Okay, if I'm a bride, you're a son, we're just going to roll with it, okay? So moms, you're included. Please don't put words in my mouth. All right. So, so this, this relationship, right, where fathers are going to start turning back toward their children, this relationship is the environment that is ready to host the king. All right? And so 
again, I want to, and I think you need to write it down, church is not a weekly event, but a family. Your kids are, are not an obligation, they're your inheritance. And there's no house for him, that's what we say, this is a house for him. There's no house for him if there's no family in it. All right? So I, I want you to, as, as you have that in your heart of, again, the environment conducive for the coming of the Lord is an environment of family. And I find it interesting that it says that, it, it's, and we know it's prophesying of John the Baptist who's going to come as a forerunner for Christ. But I find it interesting that it, it says, and he'll come in the spirit of Elijah, and as you really begin to unpack that, I believe the reason he picks the spirit of Elijah is because Elijah is the only prophet we find that passes the mantle. Elijah is the only prophet that we find that takes what's on him and gives it to the next generation, and it doubles on the next generation. So in other words, the Lord is saying that this, this transaction within the generations is what is ultimately going to provoke Jesus to come. So I just want to, I want to read some stats so you can understand, I think, like really where we are today. And I, and I, I was listening to a message by Chris Foulton called Prepare for Reentry. I would encourage you to listen, but he read some of these stats that he, he kind of gathered from the center of disease control and different sources. And I, and I want you to hear um, single moms, I want you to guard your heart because I'm going to say something to you after this. But I want you to listen to this. In 1950, 5% of all children were born in fatherlessness. Only 5%, 1950. In 2017, that number increased by 1,700%. 51%, and this is only to 2017. I don't even know what it is to 2023. 51% of all children, 2017, were born out of wedlock. 51. 90% of all prisoners are men. 75% of those are fatherless. 63% of all youth suicides are fatherless. 90% of all homeless or runaways are fatherless. 30 times, 32 times more likely than someone raised with a father. 85% of all behavior disorders are from fatherless homes. 20 times more likely than someone raised with a father. 80% of all rapes are from father, or rapists are from fatherless homes. 14 times more likely than someone raised with a father. 71% of all high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. Nine times more likely than someone raised with a father. It's pretty eye-opening, right? Now, I know that we have single moms among us, and I want you to hear, here's the beauty of the church, is it's not a weekly event. But you have now been introduced to a room full of fathers. It's called the household of faith. Right? This is why discipleship cannot just be a program we use at the church to grow our numbers. But discipleship becomes lifeline in which blood flows through the body. Right? What does the scriptures tell us? That the purest form of religion is taking care of the widows and the orphans. Right, So if you're a single mom and, and God is calling you here, I want to tell you that you have a family now. And you don't just have one father, but the Lord is giving you many fathers. And you have found a place. Listen, my dad used to tell us growing up, he, would, he used to say to us, just remember that in the house there's provision. Talking about our home. He would say, just remember that in the house is protection. 
Just remember that in the house is where you're going to find everything that you will need in the home. And so, you know, I, uh, growing up, we, were, we, we didn't want to leave our house. Growing up, my parents didn't say, when you're 18, you're out of here. Growing up, my, my parents, I didn't, I was like, I just want to stay with my mom. I still kind of want that. I love you, babe. I'm so thankful. You're just as good of a cook. Just as good. But I was raised in a way where my dad would say the, the purpose of a father is to give identity and to create a sense of endless supply. Right? I didn't know that he had financial struggles, but there was always food on a table. It's called the presence of a father and mother. Right? And so we have, in a way, separated the home from the church, and it's just something we attend with our family rather than assembling to a family. And we don't need discipleship here so that we can build something. We need discipleship here because there's widows and orphans that need fathers and mothers. All right. So let's turn to Luke 1. Luke chapter 1. And I know that's a school night, so we are going to try to do this quick. And let's, let's start in verse, start in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of, Ab- of <laughs> Abijah. We're going to go with that. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, for Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear came upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. I believe that maybe couples in here tonight that are praying for babies, it's going to happen tonight. In Jesus' name, you hear me? Come on. All right. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and, be fi- and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the Spirit and the power of Elijah, and turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. I love this line. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Man, I feel like what the Lord is doing in this room is he's making ready for the Lord. Everyone say, for the Lord. For the Lord. Before it's for our city, before it's for anything else, He's preparing a people that God is going to go, I like them. He's preparing a people for the Lord. 
and then jump to, uh, jump to verse 57. just to give you context before we start reading, Zechariah responds to this angel with unbelief. And he begins to doubt in his heart, and so the angel strikes his mouth with silence. This is important. So now the whole term of this pregnancy, Zechariah can't have a conversation with Elizabeth because he's mute. So you get to verse 57, and it says, Now... The time came for Elizabeth to give birth and to bear her son. And his neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her, and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. So eight days in, Zechariah still can't talk, okay? And they would, and this is important, I want you to underline this, highlight this, they would have called him Zechariah after his father. Now we understand that in our culture In our culture, your firstborn son, you name after dad. That's why we have in our family five Costis or four or whatever it is. And we're continuing the tradition. It's it's very strong within the Middle Eastern culture that the honorable thing to do is the firstborn and in the Greeks, Theo, Theo. See, we just, this is how we have to do it. In our culture, you name the firstborn after the father. Now listen, so... They all were expecting this man to call his son Zechariah. And it says, but his mother answered and said, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives are by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. I love this, like this picture of Imagine like the whole city is like, what's this boy's name going to be? And this this priest, Zechariah, that people would have known, hand him a writing tablet. And he takes the writing tablet. I picture like silence is among the crowd. And he wrote on this tablet, his name is John. And they all wondered, and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke blessing God. And fear came upon all their neighbors and all these who talked all throughout the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with them. I want you to see something. A father set up his boy for a whole city to go, What is this boy going to be like when he grows up? Okay? I've heard it said that Zechariah passed the test of not naming what he carried after himself. That Zechariah had it in his heart that it's not about legacy. I need you to hear me. You know, one of the biggest signs of narcissism is people that want legacy. We got to be careful with the language. It's not about legacy. It's about generational blessing. Legacy is this. May my name be remembered generational anointing is if I'm not remembered it doesn't matter look at my kids okay we got to be careful that we don't just say things that are in the culture and and I'm all for the family legacy but let it be a family okay so so this spirit of Elijah this forerunner spirit that was on John the Baptist you got to remember 
This is the Lord's second cousin. John the Baptist grew up with Jesus. I want you to think about, this is literally like Theo and I. And growing up, I was his, I was the mini groom at Theo's wedding, just so you know. That's how much older he is than me. Just wanted to make sure that's really clear. I remember being really excited. I was, what, 10, 11? I was very excited because I got to wear the same color suit as him, and all the other groomsmen had to wear something different, and I, was, I thought it was dope. So who knew that we would be doing this together, right? But Zechariah could have named John Zechariah, and everybody would have thought, well, there's nothing really different that makes him different. But Zechariah had it in his heart that, no, but, but God spoke to me, that I'm, I'm intended to give this, this forerunner spirit to my kid. And so now John the Baptist, like Theo and I, is baptizing people, and it would be as if Theo walks up, and he's so not familiar with the Lamb of God, yet growing up with him, that he was able to say, behold the Lamb of God, he who comes to take away the sins of the world. Like, think about what kind of relationship this was. That your cousin you grew up with, you had the ability to say, behold the lamb. And your whole life is just about making a way for cousin. Your whole life, the whole mission of your life is to get out of the way. And in the process of becoming famous, you know that the whole point is I have to lose my head. Because there is a head coming named Jesus Christ who happens to be my cousin. I love that the Lord used family. Because you know what I heard growing up a lot was family should never do ministry together. Because money always gets involved. And then what do you do? You don't worship it. Imagine that. Right? So the Lord does all of this in the context of family. And it wasn't just John the Baptist that had this forerunner spirit. He got that from his father. Now let's go to Genesis 24. So I want you to see that even the story, the narrative of the testimony of Jesus' natural in the flesh life required, everyone say required, someone before him. I want you to write it down. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world, who became flesh, God became a seed and put on flesh. Even the God who became a seed and put on flesh honored his own order of there must be someone that goes before me. So you get to, it's just my kid, it's fine. Genesis 24. And we're going to just read a lot of this and I'm going to try to do it quick. So think quick, keep up, and if you don't, I don't know what to tell you, okay? But I'm a slow reader, so it's in your benefit. Genesis 24, let's, let's actually, for the sake of time, I'm going to start in verse 28, but I'm going to give you some context. Chapter 24 begins where Abraham is ready for his son Isaac to find a wife, all right? And as we read into this, I want you to remember that forerunner spirit thing, okay? Abraham is now ready for Isaac to find a wife, but Abraham wants Isaac to find a wife from his from his hometown, from his kindred, okay? And, and he he's, takes his oldest servant in the house. 
And this oldest servant within the house runs all of Abraham's affairs, oversees the house, and this servant is now on his way to go find the son a wife, all right? And he, he gets to this, this well, and, and he finds this beautiful woman, the scriptures describe her as this beautiful young woman named Rebecca. And him and Rebecca start having a conversation, and this servant is thinking, oh, this is, this is the wife. This is where the Lord has directed me. This woman is ultimately going to be Isaac's wife and begins to pursue a way to get in with the family, all right? And you get to verse 28. It said, then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about all these things. If you're in your physical Bible or even on your phone, I want you to underline mother's household. Because what you're going to see in this story is there is a father that's not present. And we're going to see this stark difference between Abraham's family and this man's family. All right? And so I want you to see Rebecca has this encounter with the oldest servant of Abraham. And now she's excited. She runs to mom's, her mother's household, which I always found fascinating. Because does she not live with dad? So... She runs to her father's household about these things, and it says, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban's a huge problem in this whole story, okay? But Laban ran out toward the man to the spring as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister. Thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring, and he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I, underline for I, for I have prepared the house and the place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. So there's, there's six times, and I'm not going to be able to highlight them all, but there's six times in this story that Laban inappropriately takes the role of a father, okay? Now, we don't hear about dad at all, and in, in our culture, you're going to hear things that to us would be like, you're coming in as future son-in-law and not honoring dad. That's like suicide, okay? And so... This man Laban, who is Rebecca's brother, is inappropriately taking the place of father, okay? And you're going to see why in a second. So jump now to verse 50. Now this, now this is the first time we begin to hear about Rebecca's dad. And it says, then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, now Bethuel is Rebecca's father. I wish I had a whiteboard and I can draw this family tree because it gets kind of confusing but just remember, you have Bethuel. Everyone look. Bethuel, top of the tree. Then you have Rebecca. You have Laban, brother and sister. And Bethuel is married to a woman that I don't know her name. But this is, this is one side of the family. And then on the other side, you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Okay? Two families. So Laban 
And Bethuel answered, verse 50, and said, This thing has come from the Lord, because the man begins to describe, the oldest servant begins to describe, I was sent by Abraham to find a wife for Isaac. I think I found her, and it's your daughter, and it's your sister, Rebecca. And so they're now responding in verse 50, and they answered and said, This thing has come from the Lord, but we can't speak bad or good. They had a passive response. I think one of the biggest issues in culture today is passive men. Sorry if that offends you, but it's true. Men that don't know how to just make decisions and lead their families. So they just, whatever, okay? So passive response, we can't really say if it's good or bad. Behold, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go. Wow. Rebecca seemed to hold a lot of value in the family. And let her be the wife of your master's son as the Lord has spoken. Then verse 52. When Abraham's servant heard these words, he bowed himself before the Lord of the whole earth. And the servant brought out jewelry, silver, and gold, and garments, and he gave them to Rebekah. He also gave her brother and her mother costly ornaments. Now listen, you don't hear about dad again. It's like dad gives this passive response, and then all of a sudden dad's not there. So, so Abraham's servant... He's given gifts to mom and to brother, but dad is not present. And it says, and he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they rose in the morning, he said, send me away with your sister. Her brother and her mother said, where's dad? Her mother and her brother said, let the young woman remain with us a while, at least 10 days after that she may go. But he said to them, do not delay me since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. Now jump to chapter 27. So they're trying to delay what God wants to do. Bethuel is like, I don't really know if it's good or bad, but you can have her. And then we never hear from Bethuel again. Now Laban and mom take over the storyline. And you have a very dysfunctional family begin to form. So now you get to verse 41, and up to this point, Isaac and Rebekah have met, they have married, and they've had two sons. And it says in verse 41, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, And then I'm going to kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you planning, about planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away. Until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what, he has, what you have done to him, then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I go through this all in one day? And it says in verse 46, Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite woman. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be? Now we've got to slow down because Rebekah is being manipulative. All right? So again, Isaac and Rebekah have met. They've had two sons. And because 
There is disorder in a previous generation with an absent, not present father. You now have two brothers who hate each other. And these two brothers are scheming against each other. And mom is now getting involved scheming with them and then lying to dad. And then Isaac, it says, called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. But, but Jacob, listen, I'm sorry, Isaac has been manipulated by his wife. That we need to send him away rather than just telling him, hey, your sons hate each other and one of them wants to kill the other. Can you be a father? Can you stand up and do something about it? So what she did instead was she just schemed this whole thing to make it seem like it was about finding a wife. Because in that culture, the father gives the command. So the father comes, unaware of what's really happening in his family, and he sends him and directs him, you must take a wife from the Canaanite women. That was your mother's idea, but he didn't say that. Arise, go to Padan Haram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father. I want you to underline Padan Haram. It's an important location. Padan Haram is where Bethuel Laban, Rebecca, where that side of the family, the crazy in-laws lived, okay? They lived in Padan Haram. And now, mom has schemed, Rebecca has schemed her son to join the dysfunction. All right? So now Jacob is sent to Padan Haram, the house of Bethuel, that absent father. And he says, I want you to take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. All right. So now jump to chapter 29. So Jacob is now arriving. You guys okay? Try to stay with me. All right. I know we're reading a lot, but it all makes sense at the end. Chapter 29. Now Jacob arrives in Padan Haram. Let's start in verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, so this is Jacob's uncle, Laban. Because you are my kinsman, you should therefore serve me, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. So he's saying, I want to pay you for your help. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. But Laban, who is a schemer, but Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should, or I'm sorry, is it, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served for seven years for Rachel, and they seemed but a few days because of the love he had for her. I want you to underline that. His love for Rachel made seven years seem like a few days. We're going to bring it together at the end. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time has completed. I definitely did not tell my father-in-law that. So Laban, <laughs> that's so intense. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. And then we know the story. But again, this dysfunctional family, 
Laban sets up this whole scheme of he's going to think he's with Rachel, but really he's with Leah. Anyone ever read the story? Okay. And so now he's got, a, he's got Leah, but now he's got to serve for another seven years to get the one he really loved. All because Laban is dysfunctional. Because Laban is a schemer, right? And I know that we all call Jacob a schemer. He got it from his mother and his uncle. All right? So then in verse 30, you see this, or in chapter 30, you really see uh, Leah's beginning to produce sons, but Leah knows that she's not really loved. So she begins to make these kinds of statements in verse 20 of chapter 30. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with good endowment. Now my husband will honor me and love me because I have given him six sons. In other words, I'm going to win his love by producing something. I'm going to, because the affection is not there, maybe production will do it. Right? Again, I want you to see it's all rooted in an absent father at the top. And all this dysfunction, Laban stepping out of his realm of authority, taking on a role of a father, mother is a schemer, and now Jacob's in a horrible situation. All right, so now, now keep going. Go to chapter 35. And before we read chapter 35, I want you to see what started with the lack of a father led to two generations. Now we know that he ends up finally marrying Rachel, but Rachel is barren. You know who else was barren? Rebecca. So I want you to see what started with the lack of a father led to two generations of barrenness, insecurity, manipulation, weariness, and sorrow. Do you know what Leah's name means? It means weary. Two generations of barrenness, insecurity, manipulation, and easily manipulated weariness and sorrow and i believe the absence of the absence of the father fueled manipulation in laban and leah and leah was never appropriately identified by her father and in turn she thought because i never had somebody tell me my value i think that i'll gain value by being productive it's a big daddy issue and you got to understand when the children of israel are reading this they know this side of God. I want you to listen. They know this side of God, that even the way the anointing worked, even the way the priesthood was picked in the Old Testament was you can't be a priest unless your father was a priest. There was this, this, this distinct order about the father. And, and at the end of the story, when you hear Jesus say, our father, for these people, that changes everything. Because you've got to understand how intentional he is of the pattern he's built in the scriptures. So you couldn't be in ministry, you couldn't do anything unless the father that was anointed took off his garment and put it on his son. Right? So when they're reading this, they're reading this is a very dysfunctional family. But on the other side, you've got the God of Abraham. And, and the God of, of Isaac right? Isaac knew God because he knew the God of his father. And then Jacob knew God because he knew the God of his father. And you see these two families being born. One is family, order, inheritance. It says Abraham, at the end of his life, he gave everything he had to Isaac. Where's Bethuel? 
So I believe, listen, her father, talking about Leah, reinforces her insecurity by causing her to believe the only way any man will ever love you is if I trick him. And Leah had to think, he never wanted me because of what I've seen in my father or, be, or the lack thereof. So I'm going to spend my life. I want you now to apply this to many Christians today. I am now going to spend my life working for affection rather than working from it. And there's so many in this generation that have never felt accepted, never felt loved, never felt undergirded, and it's caused them to have a wrong perspective of God all because we lacked fathers with God's heart. And this perspective, listen, has become produce, and then you'll be accepted. A generation that is weary like Leah, right? A generation that's weary like Leah, thinking that they need influence and productivity to be accepted and beloved because they never had anybody in their life telling them it doesn't matter how many followers you have. So, so what we've bred today with this celebrity culture called Christianity is we have bred very gifted, powerful orphans. And we've got ministries and churches everywhere and people gathering in masses, but there's no family assembled. And we don't need this. I, I, I honestly feel like the Lord is declaring war. And, and these poor people that are famous, that probably never intended to be, that we have created idols out of them, not they. I feel bad for these people. I feel bad for these people that feel like they can't go to a store without signing an autograph because they're a Christian singer. I feel bad for these people that feel like they can't show up to church. We are engulfed in it in this culture in Nashville feel like they can't come to a church because somebody's going to want a picture with them because they really loved their album. And we have this celebrity culture, and it's not their fault, but we don't need celebrity leaders in this hour that we follow from afar and we're impressed with the way their Instagram looks. But present, listen, rather present seated fathers. We can honor those that God has given unusual influence to for his purposes and support their call that is impacting the earth 100%. But what will pierce generations is not good messages on YouTube, but present fathers and mothers raising households. My, you know my kids, when I come home, they're not starstruck by me. I would actually like if they were a little bit more excited when I came home. I had to have a full talk with William just the other day. Because he used to run to me when I'd come home from a trip. And unfortunately, I'm like, Lord, am I traveling so much that now he's like, what's up, Bubba? So I sat him down. I'm like, hey, hey, turn, turn this off. And I, had a, and I had a talk with him about, you know what, like, the greatest joy in my life is? I said, when I open the door and you're running to your father. And he was like, all right. So now I come home. He puts anything down he's doing. He goes, Bubba, you ready? And he runs to me. Benji's so little, he's truly excited to see me. William's faking it, but at, least, but at least it's for my heart. And Ellie, she's solid. She's the most affectionate child we have. So, but my kids aren't, aren't in awe and wonder of their father. They're not starstruck of me as a leader. You know what, though? When they're scared, you know who they run to? They run to me. When they need help, you know who they come to is they come to me. They're not going to the person they follow on Instagram. They're coming to me. 
And I've accepted, listen, that pastoring a church is, and I think for any of our pastors that God raises that we're going to establish, we divorced the idea a long time ago of just pastoring people. And we've gotten married to the idea, and we've watched it work. We've gotten married to the idea of raising sons to become fathers and raising daughters to become mothers. And a whole community who has people that they can identify with of I am being raised. I am being discipled. I'm not just coming to some cool service and getting goosebumps and going home and watching football. There's, there's surely got to be more than this. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, do you know that because of you being out of order, that many are weak and sick among you, even dying? In other words, could it be that we're not seeing the power that we want to see? We're not seeing the glory that we want to see because we're not in order as a family. I mean, does it say it or not that first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, everyone say after that. Miracles, signs, and wonders. In other words, you want glory, it's preceded by order. He doesn't say just apostles, prophets. The scriptures are clear. First, second, and third. Not in value, but in rank, in order, right? The scriptures actually tell us the ones that are least needed, in a sense, from the pulpit, the least honorable ones, we are worthy of more honor, right? The Lord's building a church where everybody's a king and everybody's a priest and everybody's anointed. This is like the number one thing that we herald here, but we have to understand there's order inside of a house. And that order is not to take away from you, it's to raise you. That order, listen, and, and let, it, let it be proven that, you know, when we started, I'll just be really vulnerable with you. When we started in Nashville, there were so many people confused by me making the statement, I will not be your pastor. Because we have been so integrated in the wineskin within our thinking. We've been so taught within our thinking of who's like the main person that we all come around. And we want Moses still desperately in our culture. But the Lord wants to come close to everyone and turn everyone into a king and priest. My job is not to father everyone. My job is to father fathers that father everyone. Right? And this is why I think in many ways we've lacked the full five-fold ministry is because we are centered around one anointing and we're not receiving the whole lamb because the pride of leaders is I have to be in control. And if I'm not in control, it's out of order. Do you know that my house, even today, sometimes is the most chaotic sounding place you've ever gone in your life? Four kids are throwing trucks past your face. I was trying to take a nap today. And the noises and the pain of just being on the couch. I remember when Emily and I were engaged, I was at Theo's house in Florida. And Theo's really soft-spoken and articulate and all this stuff, right? And so he's grinding coffee in the kitchen. And it's loud, and he's talking like he always talks, just smooth, you know? He's grinding coffee, and his three boys, I'll never forget, they're like riding on bikes. And I'm thinking... He just lets them do this stuff in here. And trucks are flying past Theo's face. And Emily, and I'm leaning over to Emily going, can you hear what he's saying? And I'm like, and she's like, no. And so I'm like, I can't hear you. And he stops the grinder. And he looks at me and he gives me the best parenting advice I've ever heard. I think about it daily. He said, if you don't block it out, you'll die. <laughs> <laughs> 
Can I get an amen from some parents in here that if you just don't learn how to live at rest, they'll take you out of it real quick. <laughs> but look at Theo now. He's just killing it, you know. But, you know, the kids get to have fun and play in the safety of my home. You know when I get controlling is when they're not in the house. I used to be the dad that was like, I'm never going to put leashes on my kids. Can you believe that, parent? Now, I'm like, can I get leashes for all of them? <laughs> right? Like, it's, we've, we've so flipped it. But, but in the house is actually where the kids get to run free. It's where the kids get to just fully express fully who they are. It's out of the house that I got to teach them, hey, that fun personality you can have in front of a stranger. You don't have to be afraid. But you know why they get to run free? Because they're in the order and authority of Bubba's house. So some theologians, and I'm almost done, would say, actually, Ashley, if I could have you come. Some theologians would say that Leah's dim eye wasn't so much a lack of beauty, but an actual problem of dysfunctional vision. It wasn't just that she wasn't attractive. It was that her eye was dim. She couldn't see very well. So could Leah represent in the story dysfunctional vision within God's house that's made us weary? That's what her name means, weary. Could Leah represent dysfunctional vision within God's house that's made us weary and the next generation wants nothing to do with ministry because we've made the cost of ministry our kids, but really it's dysfunctional vision. And it's become normal, and we all would know this, it's become normal in church culture today for leaders to be depressed, to be discouraged. They need 40, you know, four-week sabbaticals to get away from everyone, to be filled up. I don't need four weeks away from my kids. I actually hate leaving my family for a day. I don't like leaving my family for a week. It's the worst. I'm on a plane looking at pictures of them when their baby's weeping. Could it be that as leaders and within the structure of church, that leaders have taken on a burden that was never intended to be carried alone? But due to dysfunctional vision, birth in religion, we have leaders that are exhausted and depressed. If you study statistics, pastors in the 20-something percent are suicidal. One of my favorite preachers says this, could our restlessness be a consequence that we, that, of a substitute we made, production over affection? We married Leah, and we forgot about the one that we loved. And you got in bed with production, and it'll give you numbers like Leah did. She gave him a lot of sons. But the inheritance will be weariness. You might have a massive church, but you'll be weary. When you find your Rachel, which is your affection for him, you'll get promise. And I'm not preaching on the spirit of Jezebel, but Laban was clearly under it. The spirit of Jezebel in Revelation is, is not just some woman that we read about. It's, it's a spirit that is on men and women. I've experienced it on both genders. But it's, 
It's a spirit that uses control and manipulation. And lack of fathers makes you susceptible to manipulation. You know, I, we, again, the way we grew up was, my dad would always say, I, I love my, he, he never called his church his church, but he would always called it his spiritual family. And the way that it built, even with the 30 people, was you raise fathers and you raise sons. And I've always found that in, an, in a culture where order is present, a culture where fathers and mothers are present, Jezebel can't get in. But a culture where it is, everyone is just equal, there's no authority, the, the board votes you in and votes you out. You know, today we pick pastors, and I'm sorry that I'm going after this stuff, but somebody's got to beat the door with some theses that say this is not in the Bible. Because the Bible is not a democracy. Right? So the way that we've structured this church is I don't have all authority. You know why? Because I have multiple fathers over me that cover me and say no. In one week, I remember, just to give you a story, I was, we were in Dallas. We had gone through this huge transition in our church. And I, my dad is in the service, and we have service, and there's like a thousand people there. And I'm thinking, my dad's got to be so proud of me. Look at all this people. This is amazing. I'm feeling very good about myself. And I preach a really kind of like cool message that had some cool lines in it that rhymed. And I'm thinking, my dad is going to be super excited. I get home. My dad's at my house. He said, you and I are going on a drive. I knew I was in trouble, but I didn't really know for what. I thought he was maybe going to tell me he was proud of me. That is not what happened. <sighs> so we get in the car, and he starts telling me about, he said, you know, son, I, I one time went to preach for this pastor, and, I, and he brought me to this library, and at the top of the library is all these new books and self-help and, and all this stuff. And he said, and he opened up like a door to the basement and we go down to the basement and there's all these books in there from D.L. Moody and Besselia Schlink and Catherine Kuhlman. They got dust on them. And the pastor makes this statement, isn't it amazing that all that nonsense is upstairs and all the treasure is hidden in the basement? And he said to me, I remember the days, and he's talking to me, and he said, I remember the days when Oral Roberts would sit in tents and people would have no limbs and they would go into a tent and they would come out with a limb. He said, I remember the days he starts telling me about all of these miracles, these signs and these wonders. And he goes, I didn't raise a son to have a big church devoid of power. He said, I didn't raise a son to have a big church that looks flashy, but God's not there. And he said, forbatim, this is what my father said to me. Your skinny jeans and fog machines ain't cutting it. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I kept the jeans, got rid of the fog machines. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and I repented to my dad. Monday morning, I wake up. How many of you ever heard of Corey Russell? He was at the habitation. I wake up and I get a phone call from Corey Russell, who sits on our apostolic team. And he said, he calls me Willie. No one else is allowed to call me Willie. He said, Willie, what are you doing right now? I said, I'm spending time with the Lord. He said, God wants to manifest himself. Now think about Corey's voice and his intensity. He's always like that. He said, God wants to manifest himself through me to you today. I said, oh God, I got rebuked yesterday and this doesn't, I didn't feel good coming out of his mouth. 
So I go tell Emily, I got to go to a coffee shop. I think I'm in trouble again. Corey's going to correct me. And I sit down at this coffee shop. And the first thing he says to me, he says, William, you ever seen Rocky 3? I said, because oh, if you've seen Rocky 3, I knew exactly where he was going with this. He said, remember when Rocky thought he could do one more fight, but they had just built a monument for him? And they're celebrating him and his accolades and accomplishments. And now he can look at this idol of himself. Mr. T comes out of the crowd and says, give me one more chance. I'll take you, Rocky. Give me one more chance. And, and Rocky's like, let's do it. But the trainer won't train Rocky. And so Rocky finally gets with the trainer. He says, why won't you train me? I'll win. Why won't you do it? And he said, the worst thing that can happen to a fighter has happened to you. You've become domesticated. And Corey looks at me in the eye and he says, you have become domesticated. And he said, when I met you, you had fire in your eyes. See, I'm so thankful for fathers. And he said, when I met you, you, you did. You had like this jaw of steel where you didn't care about what people thought. He said, you're becoming too politically correct. Church got too big. The hardest season of my life was when we had the most people. So I said, I'll repent. I repented. And then I got up in front of my church on Sunday morning. Biggest crowd we've ever had. I told everybody I left first love. And I said, if you want to repent with me, stand up. And the whole church stood up. And then we lost a bunch of people. And it was the best thing that ever happened to us. We, uh, we diminished to strength. And I think to myself, where would I be? Now, I don't need my dad in my closet with me, standing between me and God saying, what would you like to say to him today? My dad actually pushes me in the closet and says, you got to hear God. But when it comes to the assignment on my life, I've never known anyone to be successful that hasn't had someone to look to. It, that's why the scriptures say it's, there's wisdom in a multitude of counsel. But today we have this culture where you've got these famous leaders and you've got no fathers. Paul said it like this, we have 10,000 teachers, which in Greek, that means boy leaders few fathers so when there's a lack listen of fathers and, and, and I say all that story to say about my dad and what we experienced to tell you I when Jezebel would try to come in which is simply a wrong spirit attempting to infiltrate a community to, to through manipulation through control to cause division right I found that anywhere authority is present, Jezebel can't find her way in. It's like a house that's locked at night. The kids are safe in bed and the protection becomes authority. Now, I'm not saying all, any of this to say that if you're going to be here, everyone's submitted under me. No, 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 no. Again, I'm surrounded by fathers. And then we're going to build fathers. And I'm not going to have the ability to father and disciple everybody in the room. No, 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 no. We are going to raise a pastoral team of fathers and mothers that will raise fathers and mothers. And the goal is, is that the least of us is being discipled and being developed to step into the fullness of what God has called you to that will not come by way of just good equipping conferences and taking you on your program. No, no, no. But actually having relationship with someone that can pour the anointing into you. Yeah. So through this whole story, as you stand to your feet, 
through this whole story, we see these two very different families. You see a family of Rebecca, whose father Bethuel, not present. And what it produces is generations of barrenness, generations of dysfunction, generations of scheming, generations of, of manipulation. I mean, it's one thing after another, after another, after another. I mean, this family that lived in Padan Haram had problems. I mean, imagine the, the level of dysfunction and Jezebel's spirit that you trick your future son-in-law to sleep with the wrong daughter. What do you think Leah went through in her heart that she would say something like, maybe if I give him more sons, he'll love me then. Where did that come from? So in Genesis 35, and I, I'm not going to, I'm just going to paraphrase. The Lord takes Jacob. Jacob's now the third generation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He takes him to a city called Padan Haram, and he changes his name. Same city that the dysfunctional in-laws lived. He changes his name in Padan Haram. I want you to read Genesis 35 in your own time. He changes his name to Israel. And he takes a man named Jacob and he turns him into a father of a nation in the same city where there was no father. And now you get to this point where Rachel is having her second son and she's dying. And the second son, while she's dying, she starts giving this son the name. And I believe that there's a generational curse broken in Genesis chapter 35. Again, I want to remind you, Padan Haram is the home of the dysfunctional in-laws where Bethuel failed to be a father that led to a curse in a family causing barrenness, insecurity, manipulation, weariness, and valuing productivity over affection. So God established a father over a nation in the same city. And he brought Jacob, who was a father, who had been fathered, and he understood this is the way God is. And in verses 16 through 18, Rachel tries to pass the generational curse that was in her family to her son. And she's giving birth to Benjamin, and she says, his name will be Benoni. This is all happening in the city where the dysfunction began. But now there's a father present. And she's giving birth to Rachel. I'm sorry, Rachel's giving birth to Benjamin. And she says, his son, my son's name will be Benoni. And it says in Genesis 35, but Jacob stood up as a father. There it is. And said, nope, his name's not going to be Benoni. What you know what Benoni means? It means son of sorrow. It means I'm just going to pass on what I'm going through to the next generation. But Jacob stands up and says, his name's going to be Benjamin. Benjamin means son of favor son of my right hand, son of power and strength. And a father breaks a generational curse in a city where it began and changes the trajectory of his son. So there's this, this foundational piece here that if we want to see power, if we want to see miracles, we can't forget about order. But we've got orphans, Vagabonds running everywhere, starting things, doing things. And, and Lord, hear my heart. I am not saying that you have to be here to be covered. What I am saying is that you have to be covered. 
What I am saying is, is that you cannot, according to scripture, you cannot be in authority unless you're under it. How could you father someone if you've never been fathered? How could you mother someone if you've never been mothered? This is how the anointing flows according to Psalms 133 is it starts as a trickle on the head and it goes down to the beard, down to the garment and it says at the hem God commands his blessing. In other words, what starts as a little bit on top turns into a river on the bottom. It describes Mount Hermon. It says the anointing is like the dew upon Mount Hermon that flows down. Well, the Jordan River is at the base of Mount Hermon. So what starts as just a little dew in the mornings turns into streams down a mountain that becomes a river. Here's it in our language. Your kids will be more anointed than you. The people you're leading are going to be more anointed than you. The people you're leading are going to be more effective than you. But what culture has said is, no, you're going to serve my vision. You're going to serve my thing. And everything you have dies at the door. What have we done? The goal is not to create dysfunctional vision in my kids so that they have a dim eye like Leah. The goal is that they come in and they hear from a father. It doesn't matter what you produce. It doesn't matter how good you do and how much you accomplish. You are loved and you will always be loved. And there's nothing that you can do to accomplish that. I mean, what is it about us that our kids are horrible and the next day you wake up and they're sleeping and you're like, they're the sweetest things I've ever seen in my life. One second they're punching you in the face, the next second they're napping and you can't even handle the cuteness. What is that inside of us? It's called mercies are new every morning from a father in heaven who came with this announcement of I have a son. I mean, Jesus, for crying out loud, models this perfectly by saying I do nothing I don't see my father doing. We're talking about the Lamb of God was submitted. I don't say anything I don't hear the father saying And he came with the highest revelation of I have come to reveal my father. So here's the invitation tonight. That if if you're in another church, plug in with your whole heart. Plug in with a family. Get under covering. Serve. You want God to anoint you? Find the person with the trickle. And just get under it. And if they're good leaders, not everybody's a monster. Not everybody's a narcissist. This is why today there's battles over things like healing because in prophecy, because some man abused it, we've built a doctrine around the man's weakness. Saying, oh, well, it's not for today. No, 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 somewhere along the way someone abused it, but it doesn't take the principle away. Authority works. I've experienced it in my own life. I'm currently experiencing the privilege of sitting under. So I want to read this to you because this, when I was listening to Theo talk during worship, I'm thinking to myself, this is what it's about. He's up here reading the gospel. You know why? Because his father taught it to him. Greatest thing we can ever do is lead our kids God is calling you into this house, the invitation in this house is join the family. Don't be a tithing unit. Join the family. You can, I mean, you should tithe, but don't get me wrong. You know what I'm saying? But join the family. Come under the covering. We shouldn't have to beg you to serve. We shouldn't have to beg people to, I mean, do you know the hardest position to get is children's church volunteers? Do you know what we're announcing to God? They're not important. 
I know that that's harsh, but let's talk like family. This was written by a man. I just want you to close your eyes and listen because this is, this is it. This is what we're going to do. This is who we're going to be. This is called the kingdom man. It says, true success is not achieved. True success is received. Kingdom men and women, I want you to hear this too. I'm talking to mothers and fathers. Kingdom men work out their faith. Worldly men call others to know their methods. Kingdom men calls others to know their God. The success of worldly men can be defined in certain observable methods, methods that can be cataloged, emulated, and sold for profit. The success of kingdom men is attributed to only one thing, and that one thing is obedience to the spoken word of Yahweh. And while that obedience may be manifested in observable acts, emulation of those acts by others will never bring the hope for success. Therefore, a kingdom man's success does not produce much in the way of a product that can be marketed by great prices, bringing great wealth to that man. But the kingdom man's success does cause glory to be given to Yahweh. Worldly men base their success upon information, information that can be cleverly edited to smooth away the rough edges, cleverly packaged, advertised, and marketed in order to bring great wealth to its author. But kingdom men know that their success is based on an uncompromised obedience to a revelation from Yahweh. True revelation is biting, sharp, provocative, challenging, and an ever-present threat to the status quo. Therefore, kingdom men are almost always misunderstood, lonely, rejected in their time, and most often remaining a voice crying in the wilderness. They are recognized, honored, and even revered, but always by another generation, never by their own. Therefore, kingdom men are content to be leaders of a remnant, the keepers of the flame, the preservers of the seed, the protectors of tomorrow's Abraham's Isaac's, Moses's, John the Baptist, and yes, even the Christ. This is why God is going to bless this man because of how he's raised his kids. No wonder that heaven and earth cry out for the manifestation of the sons of God. 1998, Apostle F. Nolan Ball, the forerunner spirit, is more interested in being keepers of the flame within the next generation preservers of the seed and the protectors of tomorrow's Davids than they themselves ever gaining influence. And I think tonight, I heard it during worship, that some of you need to forgive leaders and fathers. Part of the joining maybe of family is starting fresh. Pastor Gerardo, when we were in Kansas City last weekend, got this word of knowledge that someone had back pain. And he said, and I see the back pain being knives put into people's backs and he said and the Lord said he will heal you tonight and all you have to do is pull out those knives and pulling out those knives is called forgiveness and so we walked people through forgiveness and the knives began to be pulled out and their back got completely healed it's amazing what forgiveness can do and I think tonight as we lay this foundation of what does it mean to truly be a family according to the way God set it up not to have leaders that are manipulative to grow and to build gain, but fathers that are willing to wait for the slow burn of raising our children. So every eye closed. Lord, I pray that you bring up in their spirit that whom they need to forgive. 
Maybe that father, that leader, that brother, that uncle that hurts you. If you'd be courageous enough and you want to get free, would you just lift your hand? If that's you, just lift your hand and be bold. Lift it high. High. Come on. Bold. If you're next to them, would you just put your hand on their shoulder? Ask them if it's okay. And I want you next to them to just begin to pray for them. Pray for freedom from the past. Freedom from the hurt and the heartache. And then you that lifted your hand, just say, I forgive you. Do it now. Come on out loud. Don't be afraid. This is family. This is about freedom. The betrayal, the hurt, the pain. I thank you for freedom coming tonight in Jesus' mighty name. God, I thank you you're saying over them, you have a family now. You have a family now. You don't need to be afraid anymore. Haley, you don't need to be afraid anymore. Fathers that walked out on you, you don't need to be afraid anymore. This is our job. It's called the household of faith. Hey, Cost, would you go pray for her with the world on her? Yeah. And then just give her a, a hug. Okay, now everyone lift your hands, close your eyes. Lord, we thank you for what you're building. We thank you for what you're establishing. I thank you that we are going to see miracles, signs, and wonders, that power is going to be a way of life for us, but to a people, God, that walk in order, to a people that have committed to being members of the body of Christ. Pastor Theo talked about it that when we take the communion of his body, that word remember, it's not only remembering with your mind. The Greek word means to take something that was dismembered. And as we come together, we remember it together again. Let's turn it up just a little bit, Ashley. If your kids are with you, I want you to put your hand on them. Put your hand on them. Father, I thank you that the most important thing we can do in life is sitting right next to us. That the highest inheritance we can ever have in life is sitting right next to us. So Lord, we repent for not being present. We repent for any area where we've operated according to obligation rather than affection. Lord, I ask that among this community, Jesus, you raise fathers and mothers that say, my inheritance is not what I gain. My inheritance is what I raise. That our inheritance is not what we build for the Lord. Our inheritance is who we give to the Lord. So Lord, we give you our children. We give you the next generation of this house. Lord, I thank you that a decade from now, 20 years from now, when Risen Nation Nashville is 
is building and continuing to build, Lord, that those that are sitting in this room now, those that are sitting in this room now, God, will be leading youth and leading young adults, God, and burning for you. May we forever see, Jesus, that the highest calling we have is to be preservers of the seed and keepers of the flame. Raise David's in this house, Lord. Raise Jacob's who become fathers and change nations. This little remnant, what could he do in a little remnant that raises powerful kids? Do it here, Jesus. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen, amen. Come on, let's give the Lord praise.